Hi, Yasmin. Hi, Layla. Yasmin, I'm so excited to talk to you, but why don't we tell the people who you are? Yeah, the people. The people deserve to know the truth. I am a uh, lawyer, comedian, um, former matchmaker, mama, and I I just got off a tour, a 10-city tour that we did, Um, and I... I'm really excited to speak to you, Layla, such a boss, boss lady um, out there doing great things. And I'm really excited to be on this podcast because we j- you just talk to a bunch of bosses. It's pretty inspiring. No, you you fit the bill. It's so amazing. But former, when you stop hooking people up, how are you just going to stop hooking people <laughs> I know. You know, our community will make you regret, you know, like we say, like no good deed goes unpunished. Oh. I mean, it's, it's a lot of it's a thankless, difficult job. I, I did. I had 55 couples. What? And, and I was like, you know what? I think that should secure at least like, and you know, maybe like a tree. Maybe I planted a tree in Jannah. <laughs> like that could secure for me. Maybe like, even if I was like an inanimate object, like say I was the grass or something in Jannah for that, I'll take it. I yeah, think that's man, pretty it's good. A lot. It's a I mean, lot. People, people have a lot of complaints. They have a lot of yeah. needs. They have a yeah. lot of needs. I've hooked up five couples and two have divorced. So, oh man! But in in my defense, I didn't really hook those two up. I feel like they used me as a pawn. I see. Because <laughs> I just happened yeah. to be there when they met, and yeah. people like they wanted to be all Muslim bad. It's people like, how'd you meet? And they're like through Layla, and I was like, not yeah. really, but I kind of held my tongue. But you know yeah. what? The three that are still married are going strong. So whatever. that's amazing. I think for those other two, you're definitely going to go to hell. <laughs> but for those three, you're definitely going to get Jenna, and that outweighs the hell. So I think you're okay. No, I just have to like make sure I'm going to send those other three like fruit baskets and stuff. Let's just make oh sure God, those relationships last. I can't lose yes. one. Yes. Yes. You need to be watering those plants. Yeah. Majorly. So yeah. Yasmin, tell me about yourself. I'm, I'm super thrilled to chat because you're like a practicing real whole lawyer, but you also yes. literally just came off a comedy tour. So let's go yeah. way, 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 way back. Where were you born? I was born in Cairo. Really? I was born in, yeah, I was born in Egypt. I'm an immigrant. <laughs> Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm actually super proud of, uh, being somewhat of mixed heritage. My father is Libyan. My mom, my mom is Egyptian. I'm North African. And my dad was part of the Gaddafi regime. That one, but he, uh, morally abstained. He was a minister actually in the cabinet and uh, he morally abstained, um, stood up against Gaddafi, lost everything as a result and we ended up country hopping to get the U S as political asylum seekers. And, um, I grew up. Um, we landed actually first in Lexington, Kentucky, which is like a way station for Libyan refugees. It's the largest population of Libyans really? outside of, yeah, yeah, in the United States, um, outside of Libya. And then we moved down to Alabama. And that's actually where I grew up because my dad followed one Libyan guy to Alabama. And then that guy escaped north to New York. And then we were just stuck there. I was about to say, um, I hope that friendship lasts, but apparently they're still besties. <laughs> Still besties, but, you know, big distance between them. Uh, yeah, but my whole story is gonna actually going to be featured on NBC, Peacock um, uh, streaming service on January 20th uh, on a show called uh, True Story with Ed Helms and Randall Park. So I'm really excited about that. You could actually see the story of how I um, grew up and where I was born. So we're getting a preview here, guys. Y'all yeah. are so lucky. Pre-Peacock, yeah. pre-NBC. You get exactly. to hear all about Yasmin on Muslims doing things. So, so you grew yeah. up in, in, 
in so did you did you actually grow up in the Alabama part of that story? in the Alabama part of that story <laughs> I did actually grow up in that part yeah I I moved to Alabama when I was 10 years old is there um, a community it, there was that pretty there, isolating it was small um it was small it was probably like maybe 20 families 25 families hmm. the, the mosque had just gone from like a small house to like a small building hmm. when we moved and it's you know, it's still a place of a lot of like, um, I would say difficulty, you know, <clears throat> difficulty, uh, in terms of, um, negotiating being different mm. and, and, and it's a very segregated kind of place, but I will say that there are more Muslims today than there's ever been. And I think like our 20 families have now been burgeoning to you know 250 families and they outgrew that mosque so they built more you know additions to it so it's kind of incredible to see that happening at Huntsville Alabama the particular city that I grew up in is the largest concentration of PhDs in all of Alabama and because they have lots of engineers there they have NASA and Boeing and Northrop Grumman and a lot of the big weapons manufacturers actually in the Redstone Arsenal so it's a place that um, aeronautical engineers and aeronautics in particular are very prominent there. Um, and lots of Muslim engineering families um, moved in uh, to the area after I grew up, obviously, kind of was by myself. I was the only Muslim hijabi girl um, in high school for a long time <laughs> until somebody else showed up when I was graduating. I was a senior. Some, a new girl showed up when she was a freshman and I was like, oh my God, hi, let's be besties. But, you know, it was a lot. How did that impact you? Yeah. What was that like? <laughs> it was a lot. Hijabi. And interestingly, you like, you know, for, for all intents and purposes, you're white passing Arab, right? So like, yeah, were yeah. you treated, were, how otherized were you? What was that like? Yeah. yeah, I was very otherized. So, I mean, I obviously don't know what experience it would have been if I was, like a black hijabi, or I don't know how it would be if I was a brown skin hijabi, right? Like I, I can only speak to my own experience, but they definitely did not see me as one of them. <laughs> and I had to work to get them to see me as like fully human. And then 9-11 happened in the middle of high school. Uh, so that was um, exceptionally difficult. But I will say that that experience helped me kind of understand how it is to uh, negotiate difficult spaces and disagree with people civilly and um, still see each other's humanity, even if you have very different political beliefs or different stances on things. I feel like it just showed me like what America is. Um, I think I felt, I feel like I got like a really clear idea of like, okay, this is, this is America. This is what the United States actually looks like. This is what most of America probably feels and, in Alabama, it's so interesting too, because when, you know, if people have prejudice or racism, they're just very out loud about it. They're very vocal to your face. So you learn to also negotiate that. Like what happens when someone says something uncomfortable to you or shares something with you because they think it's true, but it's not. It's because it's from a stereotype or something like that. It taught me to really lean into humor as a superpower. Ah, I see where this is trending. Yeah. <laughs> And so yeah. you, you like kind of graduate high school. Yes. You, did you know where you wanted to go and what you wanted to be? Or was it just uh, anywhere but here? What was kind of yeah, your Yeah, yeah. It was totally anywhere but here. It was so I had, it was, it was a, you know, my graduating class and the whole high school, the high school was like 3,300 students. So it's a very big high school. 
Um, and I just knew that it would be a miracle if I could like afford school because I was a sixth of six kids. So my parents were like, the bar was really low for me. They were just like, please don't go to jail. And also don't smell boys. You will get pregnant. You know, they were just like, please just. So the fact that I even wanted to go off to school, my dad like had to get a fatwa. He like literally asked a religious scholar, like, <clears throat> is, is Jenna on the line for me? Wow. Did none of your go? siblings, none of your siblings are. No. Really? Community college all the way. All of my siblings. Huh. Every single one of them. Some of them stopped at community college and only like one kept going for a four-year degree. And what's, so, what's the like age gap of it all this to the youngest? Like where how uh, the the age gap is is quite large. It's about 20 years between the oldest and me. All I can think of is your mom being pregnant or taking care of kids for 20 years. She's kind of amazing. Bless. Yeah. No wonder why heaven's under her feet. I know, literally. So I just remember being, you know, kind of like waiting for my dad to get this answer from the scholar. And the scholar's like, yes, of course, let her go to school. <laughs> you know, let That's her probably, go probably a good idea, go. generally speaking. <laughs> so it was fantastic. I ended up getting, um, I ended up being an Emory scholar and ended up going to Emory. I, I actually, I got a scholarship to go to the University of Pennsylvania, um, but my parents were like, Philadelphia, that's so far away. And it was a co-ed dorm. So they were like, absolutely not. So they let me go to Emory to go to an all-female dorm, but little do they know, all-female dorms are like, they're just like, it's like shooting fish in a barrel. All the guys are hanging out outside that all-female dorm, just <laughs> waiting, you know, it's like trying to get the fox into the hen house. Those are just always men, always lurking on our floor, trying to find someone. Um, so they don't know that. They don't need to know that. I hope they don't listen to this. That would be better. <laughs> Hala, I'm wishing she ended up okay. It worked out. Don't worry literally, about it. Literally, literally, they're like, worst nightmares came true. <laughs> so I ended up, I ended up going off to, to school in, in Atlanta. It was close. So I was, you know, I was home um, every so often. I would say like at least once a month, sometimes twice a month. And it was so cool because um, I had like three or four people from my high school come with me to college so that you would drive me back because I didn't have a car. So, you know, I'm all, I'm all about freeloading. <laughs> <laughs> Works out. I mean, it is convenient in college too. Yeah. I mean, I was so poor. I couldn't afford, <laughs> I couldn't afford a car or anything. I just remember myself at those, at those times, man, that was tough. It was just tough to be and, a student. Did you like know what you wanted to do or were you how, how clear were you on what your strengths were at that point? I feel like I knew that I had um, a pretty, uh, like, I would say like a pretty deep intellectual curiosity. So I decided to double major, double minor. I also like realized how intensive a gift I was being given. I was being blessed to go off to school and have a scholarship. So I just felt like I needed to do the most. I had to just study at all. So I did, um, I have a bachelor of arts and a bachelor of science. <laughs> and so my, my bachelor of arts was in middle Eastern history with a minor in Arabic and, um, my master, uh, my, uh, sorry, my, uh, bachelor bachelor's of science was in neuroscience and behavioral biology with a minor in anthropology, biological anthropology in particular. So I studied it all. And I was like, maybe I can be a doctor or Maybe I could be a lawyer or maybe I could be a professor. I, I was okay with anything. I knew I wanted to go to grad school, um, but I didn't have a clear path. No, um, I am in many ways a product of kind of that 9-11 um, 
milieu of like feeling like I had to represent the Muslim community in some way positively. I kind of had that burden on my back. So I felt like if I was going to be a doctor that I wouldn't be able to shine as brightly and as probably like um, uh, vocally as a Muslim, quote unquote, who cares about politics or public policy or media. So I decided I was going to go to law school. I never thought about that as a milieu because I'm a part of that. And it's always been so normal to me to be like, oh, Muslims don't suck. Let me just like overprove that that at all times. Exactly. Exactly. But we're a part of, we're a product of that. And for better or for worse, it's like for many years, like I couldn't even have a bad day as a Muslim. I always had to be the perfect Muslim. Yeah. I had to always smile. I had to give you a 20% tip, even though you sucked. I had to pretend like everything was okay when there was a microaggression, several of them that happened, you know, when you told me, oh, but your English is so good. I had to be like, yes, of course, (laughs) my English is great. You know, instead of being like, that's so effed up that you would say that to me, (laughs) you know what I mean? So I I just feel very much that being a product of that, I realized that like it actually changed even my career trajectory. I believe it. And actually I was just talking to a friend about how hijab has changed so much in the perception internally within our community. Cause at sure. that time Absolutely. there was a very narrow and limited view of hijab and taking it off yeah. was a big deal, right? Huge deal. Yeah, and now, it was like, it was like a betrayal to the community. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. It, was, it wasn't a personal decision. And now you see women go through their journeys and they go through it publicly and you know, it's on and it's off and whatever. And they kind of just are doing their thing, which is they're right. They, they, right. you know, very much should be doing their thing and figuring right. out their own path. But the stigmas seem to be falling aside to the wayside. And I yes. didn't even attribute it to this like realization that we felt like we had to be the golden generation. Girl, that's exactly how I feel. And I feel like we, we were always worried about disappointing other people that we could even disappoint ourselves. You're so right. That's great. I, I literally never thought about it like this, but yeah. like you're, it was, yeah, a, bit a lot of, of pressure. Compensation. No, I think you're right. It's a and, lot of pressure. And so, um, you go to school. You're like, maybe I'll become a doctor. Maybe I'll become a lawyer. Yeah, I'll become a lawyer. And yeah. you, you went to UCLA. Did you go straight after yeah. school? I didn't. I um, I actually got a scholarship. I won a scholarship to go do um, graduate fellowship in Arabic at the American University in Cairo, and that was a really cool experience. Um, it was a very like, it was a very spiritual experience to go back to the place where I was born and to live amongst the people I like really leaned into all of that like I rode the buses with people I um, made sure that you know I only uh, spoke in Arabic and really immersed myself Um, and I got to like meet people that I would have never I think met before and I did so many different like religious classes and I realized too that I was like really judgmental I was a very judgmental person when I was in college. I think that's a part of that being a part of that, what you call it, the golden generation of like, well, we have to represent Islam. So I think I made other people feel like they weren't good representatives sometimes. Um, And that was wrong. And I feel like going to Cairo and seeing how out of control we truly are, like the fact that the, you know, the microbus driver or the taxi driver or the metro driver, like, whatever happened that morning, you know, however his wife treated him that morning, whatever the weather looked like was going to affect the way that all of our days went. And 
we just had to we just had to like realize that people are just doing their best everyone just like really trying their best we have to cut people some slack and realize that we're really not in control and I also saw just the magnanimity of like helping people and and caring for them even though you don't know them and how people who have the least care about people the most and it was just like heart transfer transforming and I realized after that experience that how lucky I was um and how how grateful I was to be a freaking American man it's like it took me going to Egypt to be like yep I'm an American (laughs) Alabama so American, America, America, America. Yeah, like it was just so clear that, um, and it all, I think it made the law school decision a lot clearer too. Um, I ended up taking the LSAT in Dui, in Egypt, the small neighborhood um, at a place called Amadis, which is like, you know, these like testing centers. It's so funny. Somebody walked in in our test and I was like, oh my God, they're like, Fatma, Finn, have Fatma. And I'm like, no, no, we're trying to take the LSAT. Get the hell out of here. Get out of the room. Um, yeah, so, uh, and I, and I ended up getting the acceptance UCLA, uh, while I was there and that was, that was just crazy, man. I felt so, um, I felt so ready, so ready and so honored, uh, to be given a, a spot. You know, it's wild. Cause I feel like a lot of us in the golden generation go through that journey too, where we go to like whatever may be considered back home, even though it's a very narrow version of what we would define as home maybe, you know, but we have mm-hmm. that affiliation mostly due to our parents. Maybe we visited mm-hmm. a little bit and we, we kind of have that epiphany. Like we, we don't actually belong here. Yeah. <laughs> like, like it's, it's fun. It's a great time, but like, I'm ready to go home now. <laughs> exactly. I'm ready to put, put this, put this toy down. Cause it doesn't even feel good. Yeah. yeah like I want to go home and order Postmates and like, you know, watch exactly. I actually like, want to go to the bank and like, you know, not be in a line. Right. I want to go to Costco and just like return stuff and have samples and it'll be a great Sunday. It it is funny. And then like, I think that now that I think about it, like my very unique experience probably wasn't that unique. It's that like coming into the Americanness. And then at some point you're like, F you all, like I am. Exactly. I I don't need your approval. Right. It's that third culture kid sort of space. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty much where I've landed and stayed in the last however many years. Um, But it was, it was like, you know, it, it definitely was a journey for a long time. I mean, like if you remember, I don't know if this was the case in Alabama, but Muslims, it wasn't popular to vote within our community right. in Los Angeles until probably Bush or Obama. Right. Uh, I think Bush for us, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Bush was, a, Bush was a big one. Yeah. And um, so, so uh, this is all to say that the, there is, I mean, within my life, from my, from my experience, there's some pretty recent history in terms of like, you know, Americanization or assimilation or whatever, I got whatever you. you want to call it. Um, so, okay. You're in Egypt, you get into UCLA, you yeah. hop on a plane to I hop Alabama, on a plane. pack your stuff. Yes. I hop on a plane to go back to Alabama and my mom, and then my mom's like kind of excited that I'm home after being gone for so long. And all I wanted to do was like get a job <laughs> and you know, experience being, um, you know, a functioning member of society. And she thought that was funny. And I ended up applying to so many different jobs. I'm like, I need experience, you know, before I go off, <laughs> I need experience before I go off to law school. And I got a job at Ann Taylor of oh. all places. <laughs> yeah. Selling overpriced clothes to 
middle-aged women. I'm sure the law firms were like, oh yeah, we're a civil litigation law firm. This well, you know, they saw that? They, yeah, well, they saw it as sales. It actually worked in my favor because <laughs> it looked like I had some sales experience. Um, but I, I did it just to, to prove to myself that, you know, I, I didn't have to be, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like, I didn't have to be, um, uh, you know, r- reliant or whatever on my parents or anyone else for money that I, I could be independent and I could, and I could figure things out on my own and stand on my own two feet and pay my own gas money. I'm very, I've just, I'm always like, I'm kind of an independent person. So I, I wanted very much to be able to, but man, it was hard to get a job. I will tell you what, that was hard to get a job in Alabama. So the fact that I have, a, I have a comedy bit about this, like the fact that Ann Taylor hired me was a really, really big deal. They were like, um, is that like a part of your uniform or what? You know, they were talking about my headscarf. They're like, is that, um, is that your uniform? What is that exactly? And I was like, well, this is my headscarf. I'm Muslim. <laughs> you know, I'm just like you. I'm, I'm normal. They're like, mm, yeah, we're going to put you in the back, fold some clothes. Okay. <laughs> well, you know, we're going to put you in the back. We'll just see how it works out. We're just going to see how it works out. And then they realized that I was really good at sales um, because I told people the truth about their outfit choices. <laughs> and um, I started selling like a thousand dollars of clothing per hour. Wow. And what, what's the average? Like what is average? I think I don't. I'm thinking that the average is probably between anywhere between 100 and 500 dollars. So you're definitely I, above average. Yeah, yeah. I was doing the job of like two or three associates. For wow. Sure. And they're like, well, and, maybe we can just look past that thing. Yeah, they were like, um, you want to be a district manager? You want to do that? And I'm like, no, I'm going to law school. Goodbye. But you know, thank like, you. You know, it's I'm so funny. I was literally just recalling the Abercrombie story from what actually wasn't that long yeah. ago. Remember, oh, like yeah. Sam Hajabi worked there. <laughs> I do. I knew her too. Well, she was yeah. in Alabama, right? Is that true? Oh, <clears throat> uh, no, she's not from Alabama, but she was in Oklahoma, I, I want to say. Oklahoma, Oklahoma Arkansas, so. one of those. She's, she's from these like, she's a sweet girl. I can't remember if it's Oklahoma or Arkansas. Yes, yeah, she was somewhere. In, she was in a boondock situation. Yeah, because they, um, they recently like rebranded and apparently like their shtick isn't just like naked dudes and heavy. Oh, clothes. really? Yeah, I, I just found this not- out. So I checked their website. Sexualizing children? No, apparently not. And I was like, oh, that's nice feather pants. That's like a nice jacket. I was like looking at the website and I was like, but can I get past the racism? I know. (laughs) And the xenophobia. I I don't know. (laughs) I think those are the questions we always ask ourselves. Can I get past how terrible this is? Yeah. And you know, it's interesting. Like they chose a lot of their models or women of color. Like somebody back there on the strategy side is like, Hey, what we are selling it working anymore. Like it is not 2010. Nobody wants this anymore. I love it. It's not 2010. No, it is not. And so somebody's doing, doing the, you know, God's work back there doing the hard work. God God bless them. God bless them for figuring out that they can't keep up their, their grossness anymore. Yeah. I mean, I hope it works out for them. We'll see. You too. But anyways, so you go to law school. Um, what, what kind of law, what were you planning to do? What did you study? I, I remember just going and I was like, I'm not going to do immigration. Not doing it, right? I was like really <laughs> clear, right? I'm not doing that. I've lived that life. I know what it feels like to be an asylum seeker. I'm just I'm gonna do something else. And then like literally first semester of my of my one L year, I get this email from uh, uh, another another Muslim student who did not speak Arabic, and they're like, "Listen, really large law firm, KNL Gates, is doing a pro bono case for." Palestinian man who's seeking asylum. They really need an Arabic translator. My understanding is that, you know, you just did graduate work in Arabic. Can you please help uh, this asylum seeker? And I was like, oh, 
okay. And I just fell into it, man. Um, I started doing uh, a lot of critical race studies classes. Uh, I started doing things uh, related to employment discrimination. And um, really, I, I was a, I, I extern for, for the Central District of California for a judge. I did that work. And I was like, wow, like, you know, I, I, I really, I like this adjudication side of things. And I started um, doing more and more immigration cases. And, and I realized, okay, this is actually my calling. Um, so I started really looking at civil rights and immigration as my specialties. And I ended up as a DOJ Attorney General Honors Fellow um, coming out of uh, law school. So those are like basically chosen to enter public service from the very beginning of their career. And I was um, really like pleasantly surprised by all the, the work that I did. I, I worked for um, six immigration judges down in Florida. And then I worked at the Commission on Civil Rights. I did civil rights work for a while. Um, and then I took a break. I got my master's in public policy from Princeton uh, and then returned uh, to public service. And I, I now do federal appellate immigration work. Yeah, that's my story. Kind of your story, though, right? Because somewhere along the story. way, you're like, but I'm also really funny. I'm also extremely funny. <laughs> yeah, so, at what point were you like, I need an outlet here? So Princeton, actually, they had a talent show. And so I was like, mm, maybe I could do like stand up, kind of, but like comedic storytelling. So I had pictures of my life and I, and I had like a standing ovation from 400 students. And I was like, oh, wow. Okay, I can do that. But I, it would, it would take me another two years to have the guts to do it, like at an open mic, without the comfort of the security blanket, which is, of course, like a slides or like a PowerPoint presentation or something behind you, where you're like at a TED talk. You know, instead, like stand up is is hard. It's just you and a mic. You're telling the whole story. You're weaving the whole thing in front of somebody. All that magic has to happen, all by your lonesome. So. I decided to get on stage for the first time in 2017. How'd you figure it out? Sorry, sorry to cut you off, but like- Yeah, yeah. I, I'm curious, like, because you probably had to, it seems like you're a perfectionist, I mean, in the kindest yes. way. Like when you do yes. something, you do well. Yeah. Stand-up comedy is like a form of communication, right? Like you it said, is. it's hard. You need to read the room. You need to be able to flip the room. Like, did you just Google like crazy for those two years? No. How? No, what did you no, do? No, 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 no. no, no. <laughs> to be honest with you, I have not taken a course. I have not read a book. I am absolutely 1000% self-taught. And what I mean by that is like, I'm a real consumer of comedy. So I just watched a lot of stand-up. I would like act out Saturday Night Live skits since I was eight years old. No eight-year-old has any business watching Saturday Night Live, but I was. And I just remember you know, uh, from, even from that age, literally from eight years old, people were like, you should be a stand-up comedian. And I was like, okay, that's pretty funny. <laughs> do you mean president of the United States? Or do you mean, you know, the CEO of whatever, whatever I need to do to like take over the world, I'll do it. But I never thought that stand-up comedy would be a way of taking over the world or having like financial security. Like I was a very practical immigrant. I was looking to get like a higher degree and like smash it in my career. So that I, you know, my my parents would always be taken care of, et cetera. I was very risk averse. But it was when I got 
you know, kind of comfortable in my career um, that I, you know, was making everybody in the office laugh. So one time, one of my friends who worked with me, um, you know, in federal service was like, dude, like, you're really, really funny. And I'm like, yeah, thanks. No, she's like, no, no, like, you're really funny. You should, you should share this with other people. It's very powerful. And I was like, I don't know. And it was, you know, Trump had been elected. And she was like, yeah, like, if you ever change your mind, like, let me know, because it just feels like this is the era. And so for the first time ever, I felt like it was another it was like a calling, like a 9-11 calling. Do you remember when 9-11 happened and we were like in every single synagogue and church talking yeah. about Islam? Yeah. So it just felt like that was tugging at me. Like we need to represent, we got to do this. And um, I felt like yeah, kind of uneasy about it. I understood what she was saying, but I was like, it takes a lot of guts. You know, I don't know. I don't even know if I will be good at it. <laughs> and, then, and then President Trump went on an Anderson Cooper interview. Anderson Cooper asked him, hey, what do you think about Muslims? And he goes, I think Islam hates us. Hmm. And I was like, oh my goodness, I'm going to get on stage. I'm going to get on stage somewhere. People got to figure out that Muslims are human beings and we got to restore humanity to these crazy dark times. And so I went back to my friend. I said, hey, you know, this, there's this terrible interview. Um, and I, I, I think I'm going to do it. I think I'm going to do stand-up. She's like, great. My husband's best friend, he has an open mic in Bethesda, Maryland. Why don't, you know, I'll come watch you. Why don't you, why don't you try it? And so I like practiced in the mirror several times. I also played my bit in front of my brother who thought I was hilarious. Um, my brother is like, my youngest, the, the brother who's the closest in age to me is like my best friend. He's older than me by about like four and a half years. But I just really trust his judgment. And he was the one who was like really gotten to Saturday Night Live with me and everything like that. And so I felt like I could trust him about what was funny or not. And so I just practiced and practiced with him. And he was like, you're ready. And I got up there and I did it, man, for the first time ever in October of 2017. It's, it's on YouTube. My first ever stand-up routine is on YouTube. That, that wasn't that long ago. No, it was not. It's, you know, four and a half years ago. But like half that time was a pandemic when you couldn't even be on stage. I know. I know. <laughs> so freaking true. That's so a very like, good point. You know how like That's premature amazing. babies have like their real age and their like growth age? I forgot the name. It's kind of like that, right? Like you have your like years in the business, but then like actual years in the business. That's, such, that's so well said. You're right. <laughs> actual years lived. And so- that's awesome. And were you like, okay, I'm going to do this as a hobby. I'm going to keep trying to get gigs. Totally. How do you even get gigs? Totally. As a hobby. You, I mean, people get gigs because they like go out there, they audition, they ask to be on, put on whatever shows. I didn't do any of that, Layla. None of that. Somebody saw me at that show and was like, oh my God, I got to get you on the show like in Virginia. So I went from Bethesda to the next show in Virginia. And then that, I think that bit is on it's on YouTube as well. Um, and then I got, I just kept getting asked to do more shows. And then I was like, I guess I'll stop doing this when I stop being asked to do it. And so many times I'm like, okay, this hobby's taking a lot of my time. I'm just going to quit it. I'm quitting comedy. And then I'll get a phone call like, Hey, you want to go on tour? <laughs> you want to do this? Like you're kind of, you know, you're very different. You're special. Like whatever. Do you want to, do you want to try this? Do you want to try that? And like, I haven't said no. I just keep going. 
but you've had like two kids and a full career in law <laughs> while you're while you're going. I know. So then <laughs> I I told myself after you know having the second kid, I really got to slow down. Yeah, so much for that. You know, I I feel you. Some people are just not wired to slow down. I think I'm, I'm not wired to slow I down. I feel you. I literally took my kid in a baby sling and took him with me on tour. Awesome. He was six weeks old. <laughs> that is awesome. And, and like, I guess since, since you've started until now, what have you learned about yourself and how do you, how do you see this moving forward? The biggest thing I've learned is that we're a lot stronger <clears throat> than we think we are. <clears throat> Sorry, my throat. We're a lot stronger than we think we are. Um, we are also like built the same way, like human beings, even if they want to judge you initially or unsure about you, if you can relate to them, if you can relate to them on a human level, they will give you their heart on a silver platter. Um, and they will find a way to love you, even if they disagree with you. And I feel like what I've learned about myself too, is that like, I don't really, I don't, I'm not a quitter. I just don't freaking give up as much as I wanted to quit over and over and over again. I don't really, I don't really give up. And I'm, I feel like I'm alive when I'm on stage. I feel like it's my element. And I realized too, that like, because I'm an immigrant and extremely practical, I never saw this as like a career for myself, but I could actually do it. You know, when I was on that TV set, it was like, oh, this feels comfortable, hmm. which was a very big revelation for me, to be honest. I'm practical. I'm a very practical person. I'm like, if you have a dream, you need to fund that dream. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Oh, that's so cute. You have a passion. Where are the receipts? Who's paying for this? You know what I'm saying? Um, but also, like, what you're describing fits right into the milieu stuff you're talking about because you've mm -hmm. always played the representation role and now you're like yes I'm just continuing to play the representation role and I experienced that with this podcast like I don't want to yes. be a podcaster I'm not an entertainer I don't want to be the next Oprah right like that is just not what I do I'm in technology and that's how I intend to probably spend a lot of if not the rest of my life right right, right. and or, or you know on, on like the design side and, and product side and but this podcast for me is so important even though yeah. it's not my job and yeah. I'm realizing as I think about it now it's probably a continuation of that milieu and like knowing yeah. that representation is important, but even aside from representation, cause I'm a bit past that it's, it's access. Access is important, yes. right? Access, so yes. how do we ensure that minorities, Muslims, whatever are elevated? It's really through understanding how other folks did it. People seeing that you came as a refugee, as an asylum seeker, you got two scholarships, you're you had to get your dad to like, you know, get a fetch way to get you to leave, realizing right. it's possible, but also realizing like you could be funny. You can get on stage and be freaking hilarious. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. And, and how that gives permission for other people to be in their greatness. You know, I feel like we need to have, sometimes we need to have permission <clears throat> to be great. We need to have permission. We need to have the, someone else do it. And then we see it and go, oh, I could do that too. So you're part of something so much bigger than yourself. Um, and that's been very humbling too. Just that my DMs like light up with people who are like, I never thought I could do this. Now I feel like I could. What do you think? What's your advice? And I try to really spend time with every single person who's asking me to be there for them. 
and to realize like I'm really just a part of a wave Hmm. you know even if I never make it quote unquote I think that it opens up a conversation for people and it gives them permission to have that conversation in ways that no one gave me without a doubt because like there there is something to be said about tokenization because I think I experience it too Sure. You know, where mm-hmm. like, I know that one thing that makes me unique is being part of a very limited class of women who have worked in this space in the United States, who have raised money, who have whatever venture capital, blah, blah, blah. But I also know I'm good at what I do. Right. So like, yes. I, I can back it up with not just being a token and, and that's helpful. Um, right, right. And I think that you probably feel similarly where you're like, yes, I wear a hijab and people probably think it's astounding that I can be funny while wearing hijab. Right. <laughs> right. Mind blowing. But, but you're funny. Like you're, you're hilarious. Thank you. I love you. Thank you so much. Yeah. And I really want to, as much as possible, like humanize us. And I say us, I'm talking about everyone who maybe looks different or someone will look at them and put them in some kind of box. I just want to smash that box. I want to mind blow that box. I want people to see, you know, every human being as dynamic and every human being as more than what meets the eye. Right. I think that that helps us and serves us to be more empathetic to each other. I think it helps and serves us to see one another in a new light. And I think it helps and serves us to um, maybe talk to people that we thought we couldn't talk to or understand. Yeah. I mean, that, that's the beautiful thing about comedy and entertainment is yeah. it does that it humanizes. And, and speaking yes. of your own journey. So I, I saw you recently, you're very, very funny. And I saw you, yes, of course. I saw you when you were a matchmaker and comedian um, two years ago, right before things shut down at PFH. And one thing I love about artists is their development. You were very funny then too, by the way. But I noticed you you picked up a style since then, right? And I would love to hear about that journey. Like, how did you analyze what you wanted? How did you get there? And your style now, by the way, like it's just spot on. The delivery is hilarious. It's just, I can't even just buy a ticket guys and see her. So you know what I'm talking about. I love you. Thank you, Um, yeah, it has been a journey and I do feel like I'm a much better comedian today, but like also because I don't, you know, I didn't have a teacher or a mentor. I didn't read a book or take a class. Maybe I should, but I know that, um, I was, I think that it's about your, how sure you are of yourself. I think all performance is that if you're very confident, if you're sure of yourself, I think that you can really like magnetize people. And I also think that if you are speaking about yourself in terms of what you know, you have the strongest ability to be able to connect with people. So I think that the more that you talk about what you know, like they say, like, you know, write what you know, I think you should perform what you know. I think that has the greatest potential for magic to happen on stage. I realized that I needed to be more animated because that's what I am on stage. I realized that I'm a storyteller. So I needed to tell stories and just hit all the notes that you would want to know if like you were sitting with your girlfriends and just telling a story. And then you would say this, 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 and this, and they, you know, they burst out laughing or they'd be like in shock or horror or in total embarrassment and humiliation. Like I realized that was the magic. It's talking to people like they're in your living room and being animated about it because you're excited about it. And bringing that energy and that confidence to the stage. So I do feel that I'm doing that a lot more than I've ever done before. I was 
way more unsure of myself at the beginning of this journey, the comedy journey. And I don't know what kind of comedian I'll be in, you know, another couple of years. If I'm still doing it, I keep telling myself I'm going to quit. Like I've told myself in 2022, <laughs> I'm going to quit. Watch me not quit. Um, but I, I do think that the, again, the, the more comfortable you are with yourself and the more comfortable you are with telling what you know, the funnier you freaking are. You just become so much funnier. Uh, yeah. Cause I think that there's like a genuineness with it where it's like, yes. she's just literally recalling her day through the best lens ever. <laughs> exactly. And I feel that. And also like, uh, I, I applaud you too. Cause I think that generally within comedy, you have to take risks with boundaries. Like the best comedians take risks with boundaries. Right. And, um, especially growing up as a golden child, you kind of have to realize, and I, like, I censor myself a lot, right? I'm just like, okay, yeah. how, how yeah. can I say this in the best way? Is the best representative yes. and blah, blah, blah. And yes. you probably had to like unlearn some of that because like, yes, things are fine to say. Usually, You're like, actually, I can say that because that's what you're all thinking, yeah. but afraid to say. Yeah. That's what I'm thinking. And I'm, now I'm giving you permission to laugh at it. Mm -hmm. and, and so first of all, don't quit. Second of all, how do you- <laughs> How do you see the story of Ismina evolving before we kind of get to plugs and where people can find you? How do you envision if, if you kind of have, I guess, a vision on, on the, on the legal side, first of all, yeah. and, and on, I mean, on the comedy side, you're going to say you want to quit, but how do you kind of see if I were to interview you in five years, Yeah. where do you think the story would go? Oh man, I, I'm going to be super famous, Layla. I'm going to have my own TV show on a streaming service. I'm going to have my own comedy special on a streaming service. No. I mean, those are dreams. Um, I'd love to quit the legal profession by the age of 40. I'd love to write something really real and authentic. And um, that speaks to like my journey specifically as a, as a divorced woman and then remarried. I think that that's kind of interesting. And so I'm working on something along those lines. Um, I'd love to see, you know, I'd love to see more female representation of the Muslim narrative on and in media in general. And I'd love to be a part of that in some way. And I don't, I just don't want to be a lawyer past the age of 40. I'm just, you know, I just turned 36 last week. So I just feel like I just don't want to do this um, forever, the whole legal thing, but cause I feel like I put in my time to buy my dreams. And now I want to buy my Rolls Royce dreams. Um, I don't know, maybe I'll just take a Toyota Camry dream, but I just want to be able to do more creatively um, and have, you know, a show and a company special and basically more exposure to, and it doesn't have to be me, it could be to any other like, you know, Muslim women kind of uh, in the company world, that would be exceptional. And I also see myself, um, I, I definitely see myself you know, being some type of instructor or educator in the future. That's kind of where my heart is. Just to teach other people how to do things, I think is an extremely rewarding way to end your career. And I think now's the time, honestly, like I, I'm trying to think about Muslim female comics. There certainly are some. Yeah. I think the keyword is some. Yeah. Even men, there are more men than women, but still not a way ton, more. Right? Well, way well, more, yeah. but you're still a pretty tiny crew. And a tiny so, group. It is. Yeah, it's, it's very small. Like this is definitely the time. And um, also, as you were talking, like I realized there's a trend amongst like creative lawyer, lawyer friends, it's like a creative lawyer conundrum. 
yes. it, you know, and the law is seen yes. as kind of a public service, something you're doing. <laughs> and then it's exactly you kind of are planning your out. So it's fascinating to hear you speak over that. Girl, 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 girl. It, it is. It's a conundrum. And I know I do know many creative lawyers, uh, you know, who are very creative at cooking, very creative at dancing, very creative at music, very creative at at comedy or, you know, arts. Um, and they end up at some point kind of transitioning their careers. But it's very risky, man. And it's hard, especially if you're an immigrant or the children of immigrants. You know, like my mom's always looking at me. She's like, why are you living your life backwards? Huh? You have all the degrees. You want to be poor and hungry on the street. Yeah. Why? Oh, you want to get on stage and be a clown? Oh, look at me. Oh, I'm dancing here. Oh, look at me. Put more makeup on your face. I was like, oh, she's like, you're a clown. You're more than a clown. And that's what she keeps telling me. I'm like, thanks, mom. Love you. She's like, yeah. Why don't you take your degrees and burn them? That would be good. So there's always that that we have to stand up against. But at the same time, like my mom's like, well, what can I say? You're married and have children. Halas, you did it. You did it. It's like I've hit the jackpot already. Um, so I'm I'm just trying now to just do things. I think for the first time ever, I'm doing trying to do things that make me happy. It's not about making other people happy. Well, let's see. Let's see how the milieu evolves. Like what happens, yes. you know, we're, we're all yes. we're grown women now. What, what happens yeah. next? We're past the unapologetic stage. Then what? Yeah, it's like I, I'm not going to be perfect for everyone else when I'm actually imperfect. Um, I think I have some rules, some boundaries of mine, which I'm just thinking like, if my kids would watch this in the future, does that give them permission to be great? Or does that give them permission to hate me? <laughs> you know, I'm always thinking about that. Like that's kind of my outer boundary, the outer bounds of what I do. Uh, but I do know that for the first time ever, I'm thinking like, what can I do that it actually is not about proving to anyone that we're just like them, but instead kind of flexing a little bit and being like, no, I'm not like everybody else. I'm actually better. Yeah. Which look who you are. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Story. A lot has happened in the last 36 years. Loki, you are. Yes, ma'am. Oh man. Well, this mean, this was so awesome. Where can people find you? Yeah. Oh my God. It's again, such an honor to be talking to, uh, to you and to be on this podcast to, um, have everyone here. If you're interested in learning more about me, you can find me on TikTok at Yasmin underscore El Hadi. You can also find me on Instagram at Yasmin El Hadi. I know it's long. I'm going to try to fix that username. Um, but you can find me at yasminelhadi.com as well. Yasminelhadi.com is my website for all my tour dates, show dates, as well as um, my links to my Instagram and my TikTok. And you can find me on YouTube. Yaz Laughs is my uh, comedy page on YouTube. Awesome. And you guys just wrapped up a tour where you raised $900,000, right? Like yes, for sustainability projects. It was amazing. We had a cool, incredible tour with some of the best comedians um, in the country and who happened to be, you know, Muslim or I would say Muslim friendly because we had some, you know, Arab Christian comedians as well on, on the, the tour who were really amazing. Uh, they did a couple of shows. But yeah, that was the Penny Peel USA and Ill Muslims collaboration. And we raised, you know, $900,000 uh, for sustainability projects to make sure that people had clean water. They had energy for lighting up their schools and hospitals, that they had ways to break out of poverty by purchasing land for them and irrigation systems. 
And it's just been so amazing to see the generosity of spirit for everybody. It's, it's really nice to have people laugh, but also leave behind a legacy of goodness and hopefully, um, you know, Sada Plageria, continuous charity. Inshallah. Thank you. Thank you so much. Oh my God. Thank you. I love you. I love you. I love you. And I am so excited to to be part of this amazing podcast. Thank you so much. Welcome to the squad. We've definitely, definitely somebody who I'm super proud to have on the show. So talk to you soon, inshallah. Bye.